And now the moment you've all been waiting for. This is the PowerShell Podcast. PowerShell Podcast. It's all about PowerShell and the PowerShell community. It's so easy. Even a child can use it. And now, here's your hosts, Jordan Hammond and Andrew Plaw. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the PowerShell Podcast. I'm Jordan with my co-host, Andrew Plaw. And today we have a special guest, uh, Justin Grody. Uh, we, we talked briefly at the summit, which I thought it was awesome. Uh, just, do you want to introduce yourself and, I guess, talk about some of the things that have me just talk over you? Sure, absolutely. So my name is Justin Grody. I'm a data center solutions architect and Microsoft MVP. I've been working with PowerShell about 12, 13 years. Uh, started kind of like, started playing around with PowerShell 1.0 a while ago. And then um, I had this uh, contract. I, uh, I lived in Idaho and I had this contract way out in Southeast Idaho in this place called Ketchum, which is near Sun Valley, which is a fancy resort. And there was a place that owned all the Red Robin franchises, like, you know, across the state. But like, you know, it was just owned by some rich guy. He had this beautiful cabin on the lake, cool stuff. But anyhow, they had this office there and they needed to deploy a new Exchange 2007 system. And I was still pretty fresh into the uh, IT. I mean, I wasn't fresh into the IT world. But I was fresh into like, like actually having like a real career. I was fresh out of college, I guess is probably a better way to put it. And um, yeah, and I just, it was kind of like a trial by fire kind of a thing is back then, especially in the early days, like um, there was very little that sh- in Exchange 2007, there was a lot of things that you just couldn't do with the ClickOps way. You had to find some way to f- do PowerShell to do it. And from that, you know, I really got into it. And then I really got grasped on the concepts of like objects and how those work. And it just it just blossomed from there. And I can definitely say is that I'm living proof of what Jeffrey Snover always likes to say is the PowerShell sacred vow, which is that if you take the time to learn PowerShell, it's going to be one of the greatest investments you can ever make. And that's absolutely so much of my career I can owe to having PowerShell, having the ability to use it, and being able to have that skill across the very many different roles and jobs I've had as a consultant and a data center architect. Um, through that whole thing, you know, I've always had PowerShell one way or the other to glue stuff together or grab a quick report that otherwise would have required a $50,000 piece of software and all that stuff, being able to demonstrate value, you know, is key. And PowerShell is one of those tools that just lets you demonstrate value super fast. So there's there's my summary for. Was it your first language, or did um, you have like some exposure before that? So uh, I I grew up. But the first language I ever learned was HyperCard. So I was when I was a little kid. Uh, my parent my parents run the local newspaper in a little tiny town called McCall, Idaho, which is a little resort town in Idaho. Um, and they they run the newspaper there. They run it for 40 years and they're finally ending it this year. Um, they're finally going to retire. And so big on them. But uh, so but early on in publishing, you know, they used to have all the paste up boards and that kind of thing to like do the layout and typeset. And they had to literally like glue it to a piece of paper that then got sent over to the press to be press all the newspapers. And they got kind of interested in this whole computer thing. It's like, oh, man, can you imagine if we could just do all this on like a screen and not have to like do these stupid paste up board things? So they were very early. They dropped like a ridiculous amount of money, like three grand in 1980s, 90s money on like one of the first like Mac toaster ovens. And I remember playing with it and playing with like rainy day games and that kind of thing. And I eventually made my own little like hypercard animations. And then like in school, you did things like basic and visual basic and that kind of stuff. And then in college, like I learned some Java as part of a, a class. And they like, they gave no compunction. Like this was like supposed to be like an intro class. And I was writing like TCP socket listeners and protocols from scratch on like the second week. It was ridiculously hard. Um, And prior to that, I had done a lot of work with Linux. I had done a lot of stuff with Novell Netware. I ran my my school's network and it was all Netware. There was a grant from the state. I got to design that. First time I looked at like a Cisco network configuration, I thought I was looking at Greek. I didn't understand it at all. But over time, you know, I picked it up. I got my CCNA. I went into a lot of networking. 
that kind of thing. So, um, and again, I just had all these little tools in the toolbox and all handy CLI tools, but then like PowerShell just became this thing of just like, I could use it anywhere for all these different things. And if there was something that I didn't have a tool for, I could make a tool for it, but I didn't have to be a programmer. Like, you know, I was terrified of languages like C Sharp and Java and that kind of thing. But like PowerShell had this very friendly system administrator driven sort of syntax. Like I was used to doing things at a Linux command line or at a Windows command prompt. So translating that into PowerShell was not that much more work. And then just just having the power of it being basically an application that can use the entire .NET ecosystem led to just it becoming just one of my go-to tool for anything. Like I'll write things in other things when I have to, but like if there's a problem I need to solve real fast, I'm popping open that VS Code or my Windows terminal, you know, for that problem. So with uh, your varied background, you're probably more excited than most when PowerShell could be uh, just not no longer just Windows, but could be using Linux and Mac and everything else. Yeah, that was one of those things that was like um, a really amazing thing. You know, when when that whole team came together and they decided it's I, I always like to liken it to excuse me. I always like to liken it to um, very similar to the idea of having Windows Vista. You know, the whole idea of Windows. Everybody hates Windows Vista. But the reason they hate Windows Vista is not because it was bad software. The reason they hate it was it was because Microsoft recognized a fundamental shift. Like there's all these viruses. Everybody runs in this unprivileged way. You know, we have to change the fundamental architecture of our system so that we can clearly separate like an admin thing where you need to get under the hood from just your daily user life. And that's what Vista did. But none of the applications had caught up by the time Vista came out. So nobody's applications worked. But that wasn't Vista's fault. That was just the fault of the ecosystem. And the reason everybody loves Windows 7 so much, Windows 7 is basically Windows Vista. There's not a lot new there. But it was just simply all the applications had caught up at that time. And so when you look at PowerShell and PowerShell 6, when they made the decision that there was this new .NET Core thing, and there was an initiative where they said, hey, we're going to try to make .NET work on platforms other than Windows. And the PowerShell team got behind that in the same way, you know, PowerShell got behind, like, we need to be an exchanger. We need to be the tool for management. You know, the philosophy came down that, like, we need to be the PowerShell that's everywhere. We want to to fulfill that sacred vow we talk about is that we recognize it's not going to just be a Windows world anymore as much as we want it to be. So, you know, how do we continue to share PowerShell and have it in a place where that person who we promised, if you invest in PowerShell, it'll be the most important tool that you have. How do we keep that promise to them that even if they move to a Linux world or a Raspberry Pi world or an Azure world or an AWS world, that they can still use those tools and don't have to relearn everything from scratch or have to learn some other tool like Python, et cetera. Nothing against those other languages. They're great, but it's still a skill shift. And you have all this institutional knowledge that you build up that if you can keep that and preserve it and use it, you're going to be more productive. It's just the way things are. So when they made that decision, you could also see at the time, like it was, it was, it, it's easy in hindsight to say it was visionary, but at the time, everybody was like, why are you guys even bothering? You know, it's almost in a similar, Jeffrey always likes the quote of the Windows executive um, who came to him and he kept talking about how important a command line was in this. And this executive told him, it's like, it's like, Jeffrey, what part of Windows do you not get? You know, <laughs> and so this is sort of in the same thing. It's like, you know, what part of Microsoft do you not get? Why are you trying to write this for Linux and all these other things? But that was kind of, that was on the cusp of old Microsoft thinking. And so when people like Satya and Nadella came in and really saw that, like, you know, what Microsoft can be is it can be this force of software for the world, not just simply their walled garden. And, you know, that they, what they want to be is they want you to choose whatever you want, as long as you, you know, you come to us for your products and your services, and we want to empower you to do what you want. And we want to put out such good software 
that you're going to want to use it because it's good, not because you're locked into an enterprise agreement. You look at Visual Studio Code. Nobody said, no, nobody like made me sign an agreement. They're like, oh, you got to use Visual Studio Code because that's what we bought an EA for. It's free. And there were other editors out there that were great, but it's just such good quality software developed in an open way that everybody wants to use it. And it became the de facto standard. And as a result, um, you know, you have that. I, I would argue very similar with GitHub. You know, there are many platforms out there, GitLab, et cetera, but GitHub just worked and people liked it and it's where they wanted to go. And Microsoft recognized that, but also didn't lock it down, didn't make it like this charge thing. Hey, we have an enterprise there if you want, but we're not going to slowly turn the screws where you can't. You can still do everything you did before. In fact, we're going to make it more open. We're going to give you things like code spaces. So that's that's my tangent way of coming around to say, I know, because I go off on tangents like this, but I want to give that context because with PowerShell, it falls into that same boat. You know, in that philosophy of the .NET and being able to say, we want to have it everywhere. By having PowerShell everywhere, you have the ability to administer everywhere and have the objects as code and flow there. And it was terrible, the first release, simply because it had to work with .NET 1. And .NET 1 was such a small surface space that there wasn't that much you could do with it. And then 6 was better. 6.2 was even better. And then 7 is where it really hit its stride. Just in the same way, like Vista, you know, had to wait for the ecosystem to catch up. You know, PowerShell 7 was like Windows Windows 7. It's kind of funny that they kind of line up on that number because it was the one where it was finally like, hey, this is something that's actually useful and has real utility to not just the power user like me, but to anybody who really wants to get involved with PowerShell on other platforms. And now as a result of that, we have Cloud Shell, we have Azure Functions, we have all these places where PowerShell is a first-class citizen in Linux and running it. And so, yeah, so that's, I was very excited about it. Yeah, I've always felt like, uh, well, Microsoft started moving more towards open source and allowing the community in because they have a lot of passionate people. So bringing the community was always smart. But I feel like PowerShell was always kind of the driving force that led towards it. I don't know how, how accurate that is, but it just feels like around the time PowerShell was picking up popularity, it was also around the same time. A lot of the stuff started moving to where it was more accessible, where people could start to contribute. Yeah. I, I think it was just one of the most visible things. I think that C shift within, again, I don't work for Microsoft. I'm a Microsoft MVP, but that just simply means I have contacts and people. But, you know, but I don't know how the intercompany works. But the nice thing is that they've been so much more open, you know, the whole team led by Joey Aiello, um, the project manager. They were very open about what they wanted to do and what their directions were. And I think it was just, it was, it was one of the most visible open source projects because PowerShell was so universal. I mean, it's one of those things that's built into Windows. So eventually every Windows administrator sees it, whether they want to or not. And so to have this very visible thing, say, hey, we're going to be an open source project and we're going to commit to these values and philosophies. Um, I definitely think put it at the forefront. But I think that discredits all the work that went in with like the .NET Core team and all the other tools and such that were working in that same direction of this, this general company philosophy of changing it to that. We want to empower you to do your work in the best way you can. And you know, if our product is the best, then you're going to buy the licenses. You're going to want to run it on Azure. You're going to want to you know, buy an EA so that you can continue to live, live in this ecosystem. Uh, as opposed to like, you know, we're going to try to get you in with a super deep discount and then lock you in so you can't do anything. That's sort of the old way of doing things. Still happens, but you know, um, it's very clear, like a new shift, and you know, to steer a ship like that into this new sort of philosophy. I have to tell people all the time on forums or Twitter who aren't up to date that are just like, you know, anytime anybody does like that M dollar thing to show Microsoft, you know, I'm like, this is my phrase. I always like to say is like, this is not your daddy's Microsoft, but it's a different <laughs> company now. And um, yeah, and as you say, with PowerShell being open source, um, 
you know, my big thing is that, yeah, I agree. That it's probably the most visible thing, but I wouldn't say that it was so much the driver. I think the driver was already there and they were one of the ones that just took the baton and ran with it in the most visible way. That's my opinion. And earlier you mentioned the sacred vow of PowerShell. Could you mm-hmm. just remind us what that was? Sure. So uh, Jeffrey Snover, who is the uh, sort of the, the technology fellow and basically the creator of PowerShell, uh, previously it used to be known as Monad when it was in the initial days. And he wrote this thing called the Monad Manifesto. If you just Google Monad Manifest Manifesto, it'll come up. And before anything in PowerShell was written, you know, Jeffrey was just this guy who was an engineer who saw like the things that were happening in Linux, the things that were happening in these other worlds, and were like, why can't this stuff happen in Windows? Like pipes are so cool. Why can't we do that in Windows? Why can't we have these concepts of why do we have to do everything as text? Why can't we do things with objects? And, you know, it's not super concrete in there. And a lot of the great things, the great revolutionary things about PowerShell didn't come from Jeffrey. They came from his great technical team that he worked with and led. But, you know, the philosophy was there. And part of that philosophy comes, and as it comes forward, I mean, it's the whole idea of empowering system administrators to not be scared of the command line, to be able to automate things and allow them to not spend their time click opsing the next, next, next finish over and over and over again in a soul-crushing way until they die, especially at scale in large companies. That level of utility, like, you know, if you think about it, if you're sitting there and you're thinking, I have this tool, I want to use it, my target is for system administrators. Well, what are system administrators always doing? Well, especially if they're in like a smaller environment, they have a tendency to just constantly be running around from this thing to that thing. Like they're running from having to learn SQL and then they got to know just enough about, you know, Active Directory Certificate Services to mint a cert- certificate to then be able to do something in directory services. They're not really deep in any of these individual areas, but they have to work across them because they're in a smaller shop or if they're in a larger shop. Like they're they're problem solvers, but they spend so much time having to learn these new concepts and then learn new tools and then learn new syntaxes. And the way W32TM versus NetSH versus this other thing, they all work completely different. So like you can't, you don't have like a basis to work from. So if I wanted to, if we could find a way to like unify these tools in a way that you could have a consistent interface for everything, wouldn't that be super nice? Because then they'd want to use it and then they go forward and that would allow them to use it and have that level of utility. And so that's then where the sacred promise comes from is the idea is that, you know, if I want to sell you as a system administrator to take the time, you're already learning all these other tools. You spend a bunch of time learning NetSH and all the weird command syntaxes of it. And then maybe three years later, you moved on to another area and, and none of that matters. Like I learned, I knew everything there was to know about Novell Netware. I knew all about a Benz. You know, I could throw out all kinds of great terminology, all kinds of things about the config files there. It's worthless to me now, you know, because all that's gone. But PowerShell, you know, if you promise somebody, you say, hey, if you invest in this, we're going to do everything we can to make sure it's the best investment you make by making it available as your career involves, then great. I only have to learn this thing once. And I'm spending my time learning new skills, whether they're soft skills, whether they're new things in PowerShell. I'm not spending time relearning commands that the kid who's coming up right behind me only needs to learn that one area and I need to catch up. And so it makes me so much more productive because I don't have to learn English and then Spanish and then Swahili and then Japanese. I just have to know English and then they just give me new dialects to work with. And But I still, I still have my basis. I still have my grammar. I still know how the language works. And I just have to learn new vocabulary. And so that's that's what the sacred vow is all about. You know, it's interesting. When in our earlier episodes, we, we did a community highlight where we covered you. And our, our takeaway was, if you want to know the why something works, not just the what, then you're a fantastic read. And so, like, 
talking to you now where we get the the why into so much now it's uh you're validating our uh, read into your content yeah well I, i'm obsessed with the why and i was always really good in school as a kid you know i have straight 4.0 etc but then when i got to college um there was a lot of stuff that i just didn't do because like because i was so like i could take tests but i just couldn't stand it and things like math like i i got a d in calculus in calculus two in college because every time i would get to a section and start a new section. I want to learn why, you know, like we're doing the thing. It's like, okay, you do this and, you know, you have the proof or whatever and such. I'm like, but why am I doing this? Like, what's the point? How, why does this do the thing? And whereas everybody else is like, just shut up and, you know, do it. Cause it works. And so then I would get behind on that. And then we get to the next concept. I'm like, no, no, no. I don't understand why I'm even doing this part yet. Like, I don't want to see, I don't even understand this. Now you're showing me some shortcut, but I don't even have the basics yet. And I, and I would just give up, you know, and I'd just be like, whatever. So I do great on the first two or three chapters. And then I'd be miserable by the last one. Then you move on to a new concept like matrices and same deal. It just rinse and repeat because nobody would tell me like, I didn't have a very good professor who would tell me why we were doing this or like why it was important or how things related to other items. And so that that's just always been kind of an area of my thing. And it also is what makes me a good engineer and a good architect is every time somebody comes to me with a requirement, even today, even literally this morning, somebody came to me, we need this kind of a thing. And I'm like, why do you need that? It's like, well, because this, I'm like, do you really? I mean, why don't you just do it this way? You know, it's like, oh, we didn't think about that. And as I always like to say, I think I've brought this up in my presentations, but I'll say it again here. The phrase that I can't stand, like, is like nails on a chalkboard to me, is when somebody tells me, well, this is just the way we've always done it. Like, that just tells me that you have no interest in innovating. You have no interest in even understanding why you're doing what you do. And you just want to push that Sisyphean rock up the hill and get your paycheck, which is fine. Different people have different motivations, but that just personally drives me crazy. I have to understand why we're doing something and is there a better way? And ultimately, it helps me lead my customers and you know, all, and my partners to better solutions. It's probably a lot easier to be engaged in the work you're doing if you understand the context and the reasoning behind it, instead of just like being a cog in the machine with no context as to why are we doing this potentially complicated task repeatedly. Um, at least for me, that's what I found. It's like... Yeah. So, and that's no, fair. You know, whenever I'm put in a black box of something I need to do, I definitely understand that aspect of, um, you know, it's like, just do this thing. I'm like, okay. Yeah, oh, no. Yeah. So it was, it was a long time ago. I don't usually ask why someone comes to me and says, hey, can you do this? And the answer is always, well, sure. I just have to figure out how, but not the why. So yeah. one time I said, hey, we want to do a webcast on, I can't remember what it was. It's like, can we do this? I'm like, sure. And I went through and I built out this yeah. whatever in PowerShell. And it turns out it was an upcoming feature in our product. That I yeah. just built. <laughs> so I, I you, got in a little bit of trouble. <laughs> yeah. If you can have a, the confidence to say it's not a question of if, but it's a question of how long, you yeah. know, that, that'll get you pretty far. Um, but, yeah. but yeah, you have to have the confidence to know when that's true and what's not. And also to know, like, yes, I could, but is it really worth my time to do? You know, like, I get I'm those requests all the time. Yeah. There, there are times when it's, uh, I, I certainly have feigned ignorance. It's like, do you know how to do this? I'm like, I really don't want to do it. So I'll be like, eh, I'm not very, I, you know, I don't know much about that, you know, so. I hope you find somebody who's willing to do that. So um, that's what I got to learn then. Cause I just yeah. always can you. It's like, well, sure. <laughs> and then, and then uh, I got to go prove myself. Right. <laughs> Earlier you were mentioning um, PowerShell empowering people or Microsoft kind of making that transition to empowering people and things like that. And in our recent episode, actually, I think our previous one, we talked about crescendo. Um, and how, you know, the secret promise and, and how Crescendo is kind of related to empowering the users of PowerShell to continue getting value out of it. Um, yeah. Have you had a chance to play around with Crescendo at all? 
Sure. If you ever go look in the GitHub issues, you know how I kept talking about why? You'll see some of the first issues are me and Crescendo going, why does this exist? Like, why do I want to do this in JSON? Why can't I just do it in PowerShell? Like, why don't you just make a DSL? Like, why JSON? Domain-specific language. Yeah, I'm sorry. So the idea is like, if you look at Pester, you ever notice how Pester doesn't, like, when you do, like, describe and it, those are actually PowerShell commands. Like they're just PowerShell commands. They just they just don't follow the name verb format. So when you do something like that, where you make PowerShell commands or any kind of command like that, like you build a language inside a language, yeah, it's called a domain specific language, which means, and it, it means exactly what it sounds like. There's a particular domain, and not like DNS domain, but just just an area. There's an area that you want to work with. With like Pester's testing, case, yeah. yeah. Pester's case is testing, and it's specific. It's a language that's specific to that area. It's a domain specific language. DSL. That's where it comes. Okay. What does DSL mean? Why? There's your answer. When it when it comes to things like that, um, you know, I, I'm always just asking why. And um, the big thing that uh, with Bicep, I had a big thing on that. I'm like, why are you giving me Terraform again? Like, why don't you just give me PowerShell? Like, I don't want to use your constructs. I want to use a language I know. And so eventually, it makes sense that kind of thing. But like with Crescendo, you know, the idea is that you know you have people who maybe want PowerShell commands but aren't quite there, but they can understand JSON. And JSON is also so ubiquitous that there's so much tooling for it. And so it's easy to define for. And for the people who are making these kind of tools, they're not going to be the kind of people like me who are going to be able to write the wrappers and do things like proxy commands and do things like validate attributes. You know, they're, they're not going to have that level of experience. And so if they just have a JSON file that gets them 90% of the way there for their app, like an application, excuse me, an application developer who writes a command line tool and go, you know, if they can just like have a JSON and kind of figure it out and have it generate PowerShell for them, that's a win. They don't even have to install PowerShell to make it work. I mean, obviously it helps, but you know, the big aspect there is that, um, you know, and so that, that made sense to me. And so while I don't use Crescendo personally, again, just because if I want to do a wrapper, if you look at like Posh and Map as an example, like that's an example of a wrapper that would be a great example for Crescendo if um, if I just didn't have the skills to do it myself without Crescendo and and leverage some of the power that you can't get inside the box of Crescendo. Um, but that being said, Crescendo is a wonderful tool for, especially for all these domain-specific tools like like Kubernetes control and, you know, anything um, that any of the, because, you know, little self-contained apps have become so popular. They're written in Go or written in Rust or written in even C-sharp, you know, now it's pretty do, easy to do a self-contained app in C-sharp too, um, that, you know, being able to have a DSL that wraps that so that you can still use PowerShelly stuff and get PowerShelly stuff back. You know, again, as you say with the sacred promise, like anything that extends the environment so that I have more stuff that I can do with PowerShell than I did before. And even though PowerShell handles native commands pretty well, being able to just use PowerShell commands for that and then pipe that to other stuff, that's a win. And that expands the environment and helps fulfill that sacred vow of that. You know, if you invest, it's going to be the thing there. And, you know, if you can have a crescendo and you see this funny, uh, you know, this funny command that nobody knows how it's pronounced. And there was a great thing at Summit. Somebody did a great lightning demo on all the different ways you can pronounce the K-U-B-E-C-T-L command. It was hilarious. That guy should do stand-up. Um, I'm not going to repeat it here. But, you know, if you could just have a wrapper for that, that's PowerShell commands. You know, again, you already know, you already have English. You have the grammar in terms of, you know, how PowerShell stuff works and you know how to tie it to other things. To be able to then just be able to bring that in versus having to use a C-sharp library or, God forbid, wrap yourself around a Python library, that kind of a thing, you know, then it's a win. And that's how it fulfills that requirement, I think. Yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. Um, just to touch on it real quick, because you mentioned that we've been talking a lot about opening up issues to start a discussion 
in open source, and in particular with uh, Microsoft and the PowerShell-related repositories. And it sounds like you've opened up a couple of issues just to kind of ask why, just to kind of start that conversation of understanding. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, like, if you want to, you just go to github.com slash Justin Grody slash issues or whatever it is, and you can see every issue I've ever opened in, I don't know, the last four or five years. So you can go back and see everything from, hey, this, this documentation is wrong, needs to be fixed, you know, or, you know, it's like, I think this should work this way, or, you know, I really think you guys are going the wrong direction with this, and you should go this way. And the discussions that occur there, like, that's the whole idea is anybody can go out there and submit an idea. They don't have to be listened to. I've got plenty of issues that just went off into the ether, but at least I tried. You know, there's always the old, it's, it's cliche, but there's always like the Gandhi saying of be the change you want to see in the world. I bring that up a lot with people. It's like, you know, if you, you know, especially when people are complaining to me like about things like in PowerShell, like this is really dumb. I really don't like that this works this way. I wish somebody would write a thing for this. I'm like, well, you could write it or you could at least, you know, start the conversation. And so, you know, it's in that same vein of like, if you see something, say something, it, it kind of works in that same vein, but always the other, I'm, I'm big on axioms. So I'm going to throw all kinds of those out. But another one that I like that dovetails into that is like, never go to your boss with a problem, go to your boss with a problem and a solution. You know, if you just walk up, you say, Hey, this is a problem. He's like, first thing, especially if you do it to me, I'm like, well, what do you expect me to do about it? You know, what do you recommend I do? Um, that if you, however, you come up and you say, Hey, there's this situation, this is broke. I recommend we do it this way. This is an alternate way we can do it. You know, do you have a preference either way or the other that gets you so much further than just saying, Hey, this thing is broke. What do you want to do? So, you know, being able to, to bring that information to the table, um, you can do that in GitHub issues. Like you can do that in any kind of forum where you can express your voice. And I think the PowerShell team is extremely, um, open to that kind of thing. There's been some drama in the past about, you know, in terms of because PowerShell really cares about stability and backwards compatibility, because again, sacred vow, you know, we want you to learn the skill and have it be the most valuable. Well, if you write a script, we want your script to still work five years from now, you know, and we really care about that. We, you know, the, the Azure command lets aside, that's a whole other world, but um, in, at least in the core of PowerShell, they want the core of PowerShell to work no matter where you are. That's why so much work went into, even though it was a complete rewrite into .NET Core, you know, they brought all their unit tests along and had to rewrite them. It was this massive effort to get from PowerShell 5.1 to PowerShell 6, just to have it basically look the same. And the reason for that being is that that backwards compatibility was so important that like, if you write a script on 5.1, we want that script to work on 7 and pretty much not have any changes to it. Oh, and by the way, it just automatically works faster because of all the new improvements in .NET Core. And oh, by the way, as long as it's not anything that's Windows specific, it'll just work on Linux, even if you used all the same commands. You don't have to rewrite it and refactor it. You know, a, a good example of the way not to do this is Python. You know, and again, nothing against Python. I love Python. But when Python went from Python 2 to Python 3, they introduced so many breaking changes that to this day, every system has Python and Python 3 you know, or Python 3.5, because if you um, want to write run a script that you wrote in Python 2, it's basically impossible to run on Python 3 half the time. And so you've got to retool it and refactor it. Whereas with PowerShell, if you wrote a script in PowerShell 2, it'll probably just work in PowerShell 7, as long as it's not something that uses a really old deprecated system or some third-party module that's not supported anymore. And even then, a lot of time it works. It's good to hear about Python. My brother is a Python user, and we argue a lot. So now I've got new ammunition for the next time we argue about which one's superior. Right. So I've, yeah. that's, I've already got something great out of this. Oh, but see, like I, I never, you know, 
the, the religious battles are so stupid. It's like arguing which is more, you know, which is, you know, which is better is, is, is a, um, is, is a, is a, is a drill better or is a hacksaw better? You know, you know, which, which one is the one true tool that you should just throw away the other one. And it's, it's whichever one does the job, right? Python is amazing for networking because there's been such this ecosystem built out like net you know, NetMiko and all those tools is so great for machine learning. And it's just simply because the people who care about those things decided to write it in that language. There's no reason .NET can't have those. There's no reason PowerShell can't have those. It's just the people who care about those things and the community decided this is what we want to focus on. We think this is the this is the hammer that because of the way it works, the way that Python's simple to pick up, it's white spacing, you know, its ability to use types, you know, it's ubiqu it's ubiquitousness on Linux, you know, that this is the tool we want to use for this network automation type stuff. And so while you can do all that stuff in other languages, it's just the nicest over there. Conversely, if you want to do stuff in Azure and Windows specific and that kind of thing, you know, you got some of that with things like Ansible and whatnot, but, you know, PowerShell's the gold standard and anything C-sharp because that community with Microsoft generally decided that, hey, you know what, you know, when we do these things, you know, this is where we want to start first because this is where our ecosystem is. But, you know, to Microsoft's credit, though, they work really hard to make APIs like the Graph API where they're like, you know what, we don't need it as walled garden because we want to have everybody here regardless of what tool makes sense for them. So if you look at the Graph API, there's a Python SDK, there's a PowerShell SDK, there's a .NET SDK, there's a Java SDK, there's JavaScript SDK, TypeScript SDK, Go SDK. You know, they work so hard in this tooling that you have the one general REST API and then have tools that can auto-generate the libraries for them with varying degrees of quality, sure. But, you know, bring everybody in the tent. So microservices is the perfect example of this. Like, I don't, Azure Container Apps and such like that, like, I don't care what language you use. Can you do the job? Okay, you want to do it in Go? Fine. You write this one part of Azure Functions in Go. I'll write my part in PowerShell. This guy will write his part in C Sharp. That guy will write his part in Java. As long as everybody's owning their domains, we don't all have to use the same language. You know, we can we can work, you know, all together and not have to get into these religious fights and be so defensive of our world because, oh, well, if I don't defend PowerShell and say, like, we have to use PowerShell, then everybody's going to standardize on Python and all this and stuff I invested in is no longer useful. Like, that's just, at least in my world, that's just not the world I live in. And so, you know, if, if there's an environment that's like all, all Python or all C Sharp, you know, especially in an administrator world, you know, there's still like a need. Hey, we need this report. I'm like, all right, let me just write up in PowerShell real quick. Here you go. You know, nothing stops me from doing that. So earlier you're talking about uh, VS Code, and I'll admit I was a late adopter to that just because the extension for PowerShell wasn't doing it for me. There was too much missing, and then it was someone who worked with basically came onto webcast with me. It was webcast where basically she was showing me why I was wrong, and it, the first thing was use the PowerShell preview, which fixed. 80% of the problems. I think you were heavily involved in that and it just barely moved to general availability. So the now the PowerShell extension has what preview had? Yeah. So um uh this is very so the PowerShell extension has kind of gone through this history. Is that it's it's sort of a thing that um and, and I take no credit for the PowerShell extension. It is a marvel of engineering. It is written in three different languages, you know, and all of those things work together in order to make it work. And it's um and I take zero credit for it. I mean, like R. Keith Hill was the first guy to really write that thing. He was sort of the visionary. And then, you know, then there's been maintainers along the way. Uh, the great Tyler, um, who owned it for a while, really got it to a point of a newer level of pipeline. And then Rob Holt came in 
And Rob Holt spent a year doing this most recent like pipeline revisions. And now we got Andy Schwartzmeyer, who's so great. You know, he's got all the same energy that Tyler had. And, and you know, I'm super happy very, re- very, very recently, like within the last month, um, Patrick, seemingly science on Twitter, who is, you know, you know, like if there's anybody who looks up to me, I look up to Patrick. Like Patrick is amazing for this stuff. Like that guy knows the internals of PowerShell inside and out. And so, and he's been a fantastic mentor to me on the Discord. Like, um, you know, and I, like you'll see, if you go into Discord and go through like the VS Code contributors, you'll see me asking questions. Like you probably feel like you're asking, you would be asking me half the time. I'm like, hey, how do I do this? Like seemingly simple thing. Like it seems, or all the time, and you'll see it there all the time. Ask why. It's like, hey, why is this in C sharp? Like this doesn't make any sense. Like why is this operator like this, or why is this the preferred style? You know, and he's so good at answering those questions too. What the PowerShell extension has kind of gone through is it's had this thing where like there's sort of the first iteration and it's just it's just so complicated because it had to be made. You know, the directive was that people love ISE. Like ISE is a great tool. It was custom built for PowerShell, you know, and people really like that whole like my code's up here, my terminal's down here, and it's all just so beautifully interlinked and woven. And it all feels like one single experience. And so to get VS Code to do that, required a very monumental engineering effort and you know and to get it to continue to work was a big deal they had to write their own language service provider they had to figure out how to get this single threaded thing called powershell to work in a highly paralyzed multi-threaded world of node.js and how do we get those things to talk to each other and use an rpc and that kind of stuff then later down the road where tyler put in all the time was like hey you know what the c-sharp extension has this open source thing called omnisharp and they've already written all of the stuff to make the extension work. And so why don't we just take that and adopt that? And then as they get better, we get better because they they will implement the language service stuff. So we don't have to do that. It'll just show up as an API. And then we just have to implement it. You know, if they add a thing like inlay hints where we can hint on certain types, then all we have to do is find that provider and implement it. But OmniSharp has done the work to make that happen. So a lot of the work had to be done to refactor that to make it work with OmniSharp. And so you know, there was always this case where like the preview was so much better to try to solve the problems that were in the stable, but they didn't ever want to release the state. You know, it wasn't a thing where like we stable was supposed to be just that stable. We're, like we didn't want just like PowerShell didn't want to constantly introduce breaking changes and have people have all kinds of issues. But most of the time, what ended up happening was that in Git, because there were, had to be these huge stepwise changes in how the PowerShell preview worked, um, or excuse me, how the PowerShell extension worked, always had to be like these big monumental stepwise changes that then all the bugs had to be found and all the tests had to be written, that kind of thing. That it was really hard to kind of do an iterative thing. So like if you're rewriting the entire core pipeline, which took like a year, you don't just want to push that half written to the stable extension because nobody's going to have a good time with it. But what happens is that once that kind of is getting close to the finish line, about 70% of the bugs are fixed, then the preview extension tended to be better than the stable extension. And a lot of that also had to do with the way that they handled releases. It used to be really hard to get a stable extension out the door. So huge credit to Andy. Recently, he went through and he rewrote all of the PowerShell extension pipelines so that it's all in Azure DevOps. And now they're at the point you've probably done. If you look at the release history, it used to be you'd get a release like what every two to three months, maybe if you were lucky um, with Tyler and before. I mean, all credit to them. But now that Andy has it, there's a new release every, you know, sometimes twice a week. There's a new release, you know, every week, every other week. And that's because they've gotten it to the point where the pipeline is just simply start a commit that says, hey, we're doing a release and everything else gets handled by the automation thing that Andy built. So, you know, I think the key thing is that 
the PowerShell extension gets a lot of, of flack for being unstable. The IntelliSense doesn't work. And that's all perfectly valid criticism. Absolutely. Um, you know, where I would defend it is that the goal that it had to accomplish. Like, if you look at the code of it, it is a marvel of engineering, I think. I mean, it's, you know, computer science guys are going to look at it and like, yeah, that's okay. But, you know, for a business product that had at any time, maybe one or two people working on it at the same time, like, you know, there's not a team of 50 people working on this thing. It's usually one or two people at a time. But it is also the most visible way into VS Code, into PowerShell outside PowerShell itself. And, you know, it's always been taken seriously. It's just, the nature of how VS Code works and the fact that VS Code is a TypeScript application that has to talk to a C-sharp backend of PowerShell editor services, and all of that has to run through a PowerShell pipeline, whereas the PowerShell pipeline is just single-threaded by nature, but we have to maintain the state and all that stuff. It's just, to get it as good as it is now, is just it's just amazing to me, and huge credit to everybody who's worked so hard on that, like Rob Holt, Tyler, everybody who's ever worked on the PowerShell extension deserves massive credit for busting their butt and getting so little credit for it. But now the fruits of those labor are really starting to be shown. So if if you have PowerShell now, if you use the stable extension within the last three weeks, you probably noticed that it's much better. It's much faster. I've noticed the IntelliSense is always much more accurate, much more complete, comes, comes back much faster most of the time. It's been a joy to work with. And I've had the lucky bit that because I wrote my own PowerShell extension, that got me over the hump of learning TypeScript because it's so hard to contribute to the extension outside of documentation, because you have to know TypeScript, you have to know C-sharp, you have to know PowerShell, and you have to know those things fairly intimately, especially like PowerShell and C-sharp, because you're getting down to the core pipelines of the engine. And so I finally got to a point where I got over my fears and learned, really started to learn C-sharp. I knew .NET in a sense, like I knew how to use .NET methods and stuff in PowerShell, but I didn't know how to do that stuff in C sharp. Like I got a general concept of it. It looked kind of like the job that I learned in college. But you know, this is only a year, year and a half ago that I decided I was finding like, all right, I'm gonna break down my brain walls of this. I'm gonna learn this C sharp because I want to contribute to this extension. And I spent, I don't know, three months of hours a day learning it. And the end result is like I have two PRs in the extension after all that work. I have, if you go into the variables pane, you'll now see an auto drop down. And also the way that arrays and hash tables work in the dropdown is much nicer. That's me. Every time you see that auto dropdown and variable, you can thank me. That's my code. And then I rewrote all the snippets. So if you type function dash pipeline or function dash parallel, I think for each, like there's modern PowerShell 7 snippets in there, as well as I rewrote all the old snippets to have full tab complete and all the modern things. So th those are my two contributions to the community in that extension. So the, the main takeaway is the the main one, the general release, is what companies are going to be more comfortable using. So now it's going to be working better for them. But if you're able to keep with the preview, because that lets us test the new things that are coming down the pipeline yeah. for it. Yeah. The, uh, if you can't, like, if, you know, if you use PowerShell, I always recommend the preview extension. If you're just, if you're day to day with it, because it's, it's usually very stable. Like there's like, as things get introduced, sometimes things break here or there. But for the, like, I, I always use the PowerShell preview as my daily driver even when I didn't know the internals of it. And um, and I, I feel like I've been happier for it. Yeah, that being said, though, like the stable extension, especially now, gets gets bug fixes backported to it. It's going to be much more up-to-date going forward from this point. Um, thanks to all the work, again, like I said, that Andy has done, it's going to be a lot easier to not have to do those massive stepwise refactorings and allow the, the extension to iterate as it goes. So that the time between something being in preview and then it getting promoted to stable, hopefully it will be you know, much more on the order of weeks to months as opposed to, you know, a year or two years 
So yeah, the, I, I would expect that, that there's not going to be that much different between the PowerShell and PowerShell preview extensions going forward. Stuff may happen that that changes, but for right now, it's looking like it's going to be the way where if you're using PowerShell preview, it's going to be like using VS Code insiders versus VS Code. Like that's sort of the goal. Like I use insiders. I get a new version of VS Code every day. Um, stuff almost never breaks for me. Like every once in a while, something breaks for me. And then it's usually fixed by the next day when I download my new insiders automatically. So, you know, if you want to use stable and you don't want to download the new ones all the time, great. If you want to use, um, you know, the insiders or the preview version, I would recommend it. Because if you do see something, again, if you see something, say something, you know, the issues tracker, if you just, there's, if you, in VS Code, if you go to the command palette, control shift P and type issue, there's an option there for just report issue. And if you do that, there's a drop down for the PowerShell extension. And you can just fill in like some small details of the issue and it'll automatically create a GitHub issue for you. And you can go in and fill it up. You don't even have to go to GitHub to do it. You just do that report issue thing and it'll do a lot of the legwork for you. Grab all the debug stuff we usually need. And you just say, hey, I noticed this thing isn't working. And then, um, you know, I, I try to help triage the issues a bunch, even though I don't have really the C-sharp skills to fix a lot of this stuff. And the team's really responsive in working on the stuff they can. Focuses on bug fixes right now, but then features will come down the road. Leave it to PowerShell to automate the ability to con- to contribute to PowerShell. Yes, yeah, it's 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 quite a nice nice thing to be there. And so, um, yeah, but that's the thing. Like, yeah, file issues. Like the worst case, we just you know it gets marked as a duplicate or it's something like yeah, we hear you, but either this is something we're not going to be able to get to today, or it, we don't think it's relevant. But those things always get thrown into the up for grabs bucket. So there's a bucket there that if somebody wants to write that and do a PR. You know, if it's good enough, it'll get accepted. That'll be part of the code. And as I, you know, as I think I mentioned um, earlier, um, with the PowerShell extension, again, I don't work for Microsoft. I, I am a Microsoft MVP, but I don't work for Microsoft. And I didn't have to be a Microsoft employee to contribute to the extension. It's out there on GitHub. I just wrote a pull request. First, I wrote an issue saying, hey, would you guys be interested in me updating this variables view? And they said, yeah, we'll shepherd a PR. I'm like, great, PR is pull request if you don't know what that term. It just simply means I'm writing some code and there's this really nice way where I can submit it and this all this automated stuff happens that checks that it passes all the tests, gives people a way to review before we bring it into the main code. And so I just wrote, you know, I just wrote the stuff, tried it. We went back and forth. You can, you can go into pull requests there and you can find my pull requests and see all the back and forth where like Patrick reviewed it and they said, eh, you don't do this. Actually, we like this style. You know, gave me some hints. I'm like, okay, great. I'll fix that. I'll fix that. I'll try this. And eventually got to the point where they're like, okay, this is great. And they accepted it. And now my code is part of the official PowerShell extension and I have nothing to do with it. And if you don't code, you know, I'm not an employee of Microsoft, but you know, if you don't code, you don't have to go to that level. I finally worked my way up to there. But if you look at some of my first PRs, my PRs are like updating the readme. I just submitted a PR today that was to update when you restart the PowerShell extension, it pops up that dialogue to say, do a little bit of extra dial- information that says, hey, if you don't restart this, your IntelliSense isn't going to work. Because when I was in the presentation that I was doing today, a lot of people didn't know. Like they were like, they were asking me like, hey, does it help fix the IntelliSense stuff? And I say, well, yeah, it's actually pretty stable. A key thing you have to remember is that just make sure you, you like your, your console isn't hung by like cat typing like sleep 30 or something and make sure it's actually open. And a whole bunch of people were like, oh, that's why my IntelliSense doesn't work. And so, so I'm like, so I was like, well, how be the change I want to see in the world, submit a PR. If you go look at it's probably the top PR right now in the PowerShell, VS Code PowerShell repository. And it's, it just says, change this error message to include this extra info. That's all you have to do. Like, you can do that. There was a great presentation about docs, as I'm sure you want to talk about. Um, that's just like, you know, you can submit to the docs. Like, that's a PR. That's valid. That's contributing to the community. 
is just as good as writing code. You, uh, you had an interesting sentence earlier on where in the same sentence you said, yeah, I wrote this code that was uh, smidden is now part of it forever, but I didn't really do anything. Like that's the most PowerShell thing I've ever heard. No one ever believes in themselves around here. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I mean, you know, there was like, wasn't there a presentation at Summit about imposter syndrome? Yeah, I have that every day. Everyone gets I got, it. You know, I was selected as the lead arch- Azure architect for this huge company spinoff. And, and it like, and it was just one of these things where I felt like I got plucked in this area of just like, like they just didn't realize how important this particular role was going to be. They were just like, I just get somebody to do it. And something that was going to be like a two week contract is now I'm like a year and a half in on. And so just, I, but it's one of those every day, just to emphasize on that, every day I'm in one of those meetings with like the CEOs <laughs> and stuff. I'm just like, I'm going to say something wrong. They're going to realize I really don't know what I'm talking about because Azure is a huge thing. And they're going to be like, oh, wait, where did we get this guy? How about, let's get a real Azure guy, you know, somebody who's, you know, actually able to do this kind of stuff. So, yeah, everybody has imposter syndrome. The second you recognize it, the, you know, so I was like, I say, like the first step is admitting you have a problem, you know, and so. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you as I tend to do. So. I'm, I'm just going to say, if you have imposter syndrome, all that does is validate my imposter syndrome. Well, <laughs> have you heard? Of, so have you heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect? You know what that is? Uh, vaguely, I'm not recalling okay, the... So, so it, there's, bas- there's basically this curve that is basically the, the, the people who know the least about something are the most confident about it. So, you know, if, if people who don't, you know, these are the people who are on Twitter, you know, who are the armchair military experts who are like, you know, like, you know, when there's something on CNN, they're like, well, actually what they should have done is their tactics. They should have done this flanking position and done that. Like the people who know nothing about it are the most confident in their opinions. And then once you start learning something about something, you start going down this hill until you hit this valley in about the middle where once you're pretty experienced with something, you now know what you don't know. And that is just a chasm. There's a term for it. There's a term. I think it's like the chasm of ignorance or something like that. But it's just an aspect that, like, that you're like, now that you actually understand how things work, you realize the vast amount of things you don't know. You know, like everybody looks at me. I'm like, how do you know so much about Azure? I'm like, I'm just watching John Savile's videos, you know? Like, and there's huge, like, I don't know anything about machine learning. You know, if somebody came to me tomorrow and like, hey, design me a machine learning solution, I'm going to be on Google for 80% of the rest of that day. And I'm going to come to them and like, all right, here's how you do a machine learning thing. Hopefully I'm right. You know, but you know, but as long as you can recognize that and have that, but that, that was also pretty humbling. And a lot of people mistake that humbling of, hey, there's this stuff that I don't know for inadequacy that, oh, I don't know this stuff. Therefore, I must not be good enough to have this role. And clearly like some, some, something's wrong there. And then, you know, as you get better and you get more into a subject matter expert, that kind of goes back up and you get kind of the confidence of where you're at. But that whole thing about the Dunning-Kruger phenomenon is that that's just, it just emphasizes that is everybody who is knowledgeable are the ones, everybody who's at least knowledgeable enough in something to be effective at it are going to be the least confident in doing it. And that's where the imposter syndrome comes from. And so, and again, if by putting words to these things and showing them to people and, and telling them that, you know, again, you know, when, when I started, you know, I, I was doing PowerShell and I, Learn PowerShell because I got thrown into this situation that I had to learn exchange and figure it out trial by fire. Like I didn't, I wasn't born with it. I don't have skills. You know, we were talking about social skills before, you know, I talk a pretty good game these days, hugely introverted, you know, when I was younger. I mean, you know, and, um, you know, and, but there are just things you can learn that you can go and, you know, you're not stuck in any one particular rail. So if there's anything I tell anybody, like, you know, if you look at me and you're like, like God, that guy's so confident and he's able to command a room and whatever, um, you know, Every, anybody can do that. Like, uh, uh, not, I mean, everybody has, some people have like disabilities beyond their control, obviously. But, you know, if you have a, 
you know, I'm not the kind of person who's going to say like, you know, you can go be a multi-million dollar actor. I mean, like you can't, you can go to LA move and, and pursue acting, you know, the odds are against it. You know, you may be that one in a million, but just remember there was 999,000 others that failed at that, but you don't have to be that thing. Like, you know, you can be whatever's the best for you. And as long as you have the confidence that you, uh, you know, that you can do it. And if you can't, that you can find people to help you do that. Um, you know, that's the way to go. I, as I mentioned with C sharp, I, I never thought I could ever get anywhere with C sharp, but I had the confidence that I could probably maybe figure it out enough to do just the areas of the things that I wanted to do. And I had the, the wherewithal to seek a mentor like Patrick and talk to Patrick, say, Patrick, I have no idea what I'm doing here. Can you please help me? I know these PowerShell concepts. How does this translate to C sharp? You know, and humbling myself before him and, and having him, you know, I, I, one other thing, and I'm, I know I'm on a huge tangent here as usual, uh, but the, you know, a big thing I think is I feel like people always really overestimate how bad asking for help is. Like if you ask for help for something, it, even me, every time I ask for help, I feel like that person is just going to laugh in my face and say, no, get the f- out of here. Excuse me. If you're, if, you know, if, when you ask for help, the big thing about asking for help is it always feels to me like that it's sort of like the imposter syndrome thing. I think like it always feels to me like somebody's just going to laugh in my face and tell me to get out of here. And, you know, like, why did you even bother asking me this? And it's been my experience that happens, you know, but it's been my experience. 90% of the time that I thought that was going to happen, I got the exact opposite response is that, you know, that that person was so willing to help me, willing to go out of their way. Because what you're doing is you're telling somebody, you're paying them a compliment. You're telling them, I respect you as a person that I'm willing to ask you to transfer your knowledge to me. I'm willing to ask for your time because I respect you and I respect your time that I want to be better. And I want, you know, and I think that you can help provide that to me. So when you flip the script on those things, like think about when somebody comes to you and asks for help, you know, how great do you feel? Like when somebody's like, hey, you know what? Um, can you help me with this thing? Like, I really want to, um, and you'd be like, oh yeah, sure. And take care of that. And like, oh, thank you so much. Like, how great do you feel after somebody says thank you to that? So why Nothing better you, than that, yeah. Yeah, so why wouldn't you think the person that you're talking to wouldn't have the same reaction? So like, if you ever get in that place where you get nervous of it, that's what I always do is flip the script, is that like, if I were in this position, I would love if somebody asked me. So why would it be different the other way around? He's a human being, I'm a human being, you know, we may have different life experiences, but we all get motivated, you know, in similar ways. So, and humans love connection. So, if you yeah, can offer that connection, I mean, it, you're going to find success there. It was interesting when we were talking at Summit. Is you did mention that you used to be introverted and, and not comfortable, and it it blew my mind because when you're giving a talk at Summit now, like you you walk in and you're joking with the crowd instantly, you're just instantly comfortable. It feels like where most people you see them. And they're doing everything they can not to pace, uh, getting ready to start because they're nervous. And you're just in there having a great time from start to finish. So I was hearing that you struggled with that. It was uh, it blew my mind because you wouldn't you wouldn't pick up on that. You're you seem very comfortable up there. Well, I've had experience, so that helps. I mean, I've been doing talks for a while now, and again, and as as we talked, we had a little sidewalk conversation outside the hotel, and I just sort of talked about how yeah, is that there was a point when I um, moved towns. And I had an opportunity to move back to my safe place. And I was like, you know what? No, I'm going to stay here. And even though I am deathly afraid of talking to anybody and starting a conversation, I'm just going to start going to bars, go to restaurants, go to meetups, and just start talking to people. And I'm going to get shut down. And I did get shut down all the time. Like 
who are you? Like, what are you talking about? And sink down and say, oh, hey, how are you? But over time, it built, read books about active listening, read all that kind of stuff that basically, you know, culminating in what I told you is that for the longest time, I always thought that just being a nerd and being an introvert and not being the person who's sociable or personable or any of that kind of stuff was in the cards, that it was genetic for me, that society says all the movies tell me, oh, there's this box called nerd and that's what you're in it, you know, in a derogatory sense. That's That term has changed, but at the time it was like, you know, you are in this box, you are the outcast, and that's that's your lot in life. So that's, you know, that's what you got to do. And it wasn't until I really pursued that and thought that I just hoped against hope that it wasn't true, that when I worked at it, and I spent years doing it, and I still every day, you know, work on it, that I learned that it is just another skill you can learn. Just in the same way you learned PowerShell, or the way you learned this, you can learn how to have a conversation, learn how to do active listening, which clearly I'm doing very little of right now. But, um, you know, how to have a two-way conversation in this very one-way conversation I'm giving you guys. <laughs> but, um, you know, those kind of things. Like, you know, it's, it's all just skills you can learn. And so with me up on, on the stage there, and it also, again, comes to that flipping the script thing. It's, you know, setting the stage in your brain um, can make such a big difference. You can walk into, a, like, you know, what was it, 75 people or 70-something in the optimizing one? You can walk into that room and look at it a few different ways. One way you can look at it is you can say, there's 75 people out there. I better not screw up. I'm going to look like an idiot. That's one way you can look at it. I'm sure those thoughts go through. Oh man, I better not screw up. Look at it. Then we can look at it is there's 75 people here. They all chose to be here to see me. How cool is that? Like these are all people who share something with me because they want to hear what I have to say. So if I'm myself, you know, or if I make jokes, like they're going to get them because they're the same people as me. They came here to see me. So, you know, why wouldn't I just go up and just see how things go? And that's why, and on purpose, like I don't put a lot of work into a lot of my presentations. I want them to break. I want my presentations, you know, when I'm going through, it's like, I do that. Oh, that doesn't work. Try to figure this out thing here. Because then now you see how, how to fix something, you know, it's because you know, when, when I'm figuring this stuff out, when I'm doing my presentation on things, I don't get it right the first time. I probably made, there's some stuff I may have spent eight hours trying to figure out just how to get this one little JSON and realize I got one character wrong, you know? So if you do it live, then you, you see that same stuff. And I want to, emphasize that aspect and that and again like is that my idea did i come up with that no you look at the powershell unplugged look at jeffrey snover go back google powershell unplugged and you'll see him doing all these presentations where he just rolls with it stuff breaks stuff doesn't work he's out you know and he's in front of thousands tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of people on the internet watching him in addition to in person and he's just screwing it up as he goes but because again he knows that there are people who are here to see him it's about a topic that he's passionate about. And no matter what happens, something's going to get conveyed, whether it's a funny break. Hey, we all live in the same world. And so, you know, I take that lesson from that. Like, you know, it's not just something that came out of thin air. It's something that I learned watching and emulating people who I respect and admire. That was the whole point of his keynote this year yeah. was don't be afraid to make mistakes when speaking. No worries. A couple of years ago, I made a, a, a presentation I was really proud of on what was new with PowerShell 7. And I gave the presentation in a room of three people at this place um, in Boise. And I was like, well, that was okay. But then I like posted like a recording of it. And I remember when Jeffrey Snover retweeted that presentation saying, this is probably the best presentation on PowerShell 7 I've ever seen. I rode that for weeks. I was dancing, having a good time. I told him that, you know, and, and actually at Summit, that's the first time I've ever met Jeffrey in person. I've never met him in person before until we were at Summit. And so, and that was kind of nice. I didn't get a chance to talk to him. I just said, Hey, Jeffrey, I'm Justin, you know, and that was the only time I talked to him. But, um, 
but I still know him, you know, more or less on Twitter. I know he knows who I am. And so that's, you know, it's great. It's a community. And so that's what we want to be. I mean, the PowerShell community, just this podcast that you guys are doing, you know, there's so much value add here. And, you know, you go to other languages and there's so much gatekeeping, you know, you get into like heavy C sharp stuff or heavy Java areas. And they're just all about talking about how terrible the other languages are and that kind of stuff. And just, it turns me off so much. I just, I love being in, um, I love one of the things I love the PowerShell is because it is such a community because it's, you know, it's mostly of people who stump, you know, it's not a thing where somebody had to go learn it in college and got all highty tidy, high theoretical, highfalutin, ivory tower, you know, computer science. This is the way a project should be. It's all system admins and stuff who had a problem. They had to solve it. They saw this thing and, oh, this is a really neat tool. Maybe I can use this for other things. 90% of the people just stumble into PowerShell and then find it. And we all have that sort of human and that common bond of like, hey, we're all just trying to figure stuff out here. And maybe if we, you know, many hands make light work, maybe if I put something out in the world, that's going to help somebody else. And that's mostly why I do what I do. That's why my gifts, every time I see something on the PowerShell Discord, somebody had to solve something, I write it as a gist and I throw it up as a gist and I just throw it as a throwaway tweet. And maybe somebody will see that somewhere and it'll help them. You know, and I just, I just love that about the PowerShell community is there's so much of that in, in this world. And I'm so thankful for it. It's uh, that that community is why we started the podcast in the first place. We just felt like uh, even, we love PowerShell, but the community we felt like was worth worth the shout out. They definitely uh, it's very inclusive. It's easy to take part in, and everyone welcomes you, even in, no matter where your skill level is. Yeah, it's such an amazing community. Uh, you you've hit so many points that are just so awesome and impactful, and kind of encompass to me a lot of what the PowerShell experience is. Um, that support that humility that we have, that honesty, being vulnerable, asking for help, having so many people like us. I mean, you've heard us chat about PowerShell for an hour now passionately. We're happy to speak about it. We're happy to pass on these experiences and what we've learned and help other people. And it's not just us. There's so many others where like, we are happy to answer the questions. You know, we mentioned earlier, um, not being afraid to ask questions and presenting it as an opportunity for the person who who's answering the question to learn and to to connect with you and uh, it's so cool to hear about your experiences with that and um, it's so cool to hear just how many other people have similar experiences to to kind of what you've gone through. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Maybe one of these days I'll actually let you tell me your experiences, but I like to talk. So <laughs> no, our, our that's experience what we're here get for. captured every week. Yeah, it's, there you <laughs> go. <laughs> um. Just to touch on it again, too, with the whole sacred vow thing and how learning PowerShell is awesome. I think that for me, VS Code has kind of fallen into a similar vein where there are some things you kind of need to learn to take full advantage of the tool and whatnot um, that can be a little bit daunting if you've never learned an editor or whatever. Um, you don't have to learn it all, but like the time you spent investing into VS Code and like kind of learning it and finding your flow and finding the plugins that work for you you're likely going to keep using that tool for your next job, even if you need to use XML or JavaScript or whatever. Um, for, for you, do you kind of find yourself valuing VS Code in a similar way to PowerShell as like a tool in your belt kind of thing? Absolutely. 100%. Of, you know, you want to talk about the sacred valve, VS Code does that in spades. And again, that's, you know, what the VS Code team did was they made a great editor, you know, <laughs> you know, fight against everything of like writing it in Electron and all the things and all the <laughs> stuff about it. But, you know, but what that did is it enables it to run in all these places, like, you know, things like GitHub and dev and VS Code.dev, where you can just hit dot on a GitHub repo and get a VS Code editor. That stuff wouldn't work if they didn't do it this way. There's other ways it could have gone, sure, but, you know, it is what it is. 
but they still focused on quality and they focused on producing a product that was extensible and that people wanted to use and develop a community and an ecosystem around it. And as a result, you know, I had some stuff. I was writing this thing called PS Anywhere for a while, where the idea was that no matter where a PowerShell script ran, it could phone home to this SSH endpoint, and then you could rendezvous with it and debug it real time. And I was able to get it to work. But in order to make it work, I had to write a binary in Go. So I had to, I learned a little bit of Go. And I learned in VS Code. And how great was it that like if I had to go to a completely different editor and learn its, its idiosyncrasies and that kind of stuff, I mean, like, but in Go, like, you know, the first time I debugged a Go script, you know, and paused it and looked at my watch pane, it was exactly the same as the same way I do it in PowerShell. I mean, not exactly the same, obviously, but like all the things were the same, setting a watch, looking at the variables, the variables were different, but all the context was the same. And the thing I talk a lot about in my presentations is, is how important context is and how important it is to be focused on what you're doing and be able to, to um, you know, uh, scrape away all the chaff to be able to focus on what you're at and have that context. So when my window looks the same and all my stuff is in the same place and all my same keyboard shortcuts work, that's the biggest thing. Like I force myself at least one week a day, I take my mouse and I go and I put it in a box that across the room to force myself when I'm writing PowerShell to use the keystrokes and learn those keyboard shortcuts. And there's something I have to do with a mouse. Is there a way I can add a keystroke for VS Code? And if I can't, all right, I'm going to get up, go grab that mouse, do the thing, but then go put it back. And it's annoying enough to me that I'm like, I'm gonna. I, I'm lazy enough because the best engineer is a lazy engineer, in my opinion. I'm lazy enough that like if I don't go have to go get that, I'm gonna sit here until I figure out that shortcut because I'm too lazy to go get that mouse again. I think um, lazy is the most common theme that we get from guests. Everyone gets in there. They've done these great things. This expansive library is like, yeah, I'm lazy. I love it. Oh yeah, no. I always <laughs> tell like in all my hiring things, it's like I'm always like I am not looking. Like I like passionate engineers. I like. You know, I like people there, but what I'm really looking for is a lazy engineer. I'm looking for the guy who, if he tries to, if he has to do the same thing three times, it's going to drive him crazy and he's going to automate it. You know, like that, that's the guy I'm looking for. I'm looking for the lazy guy so he can go and kick back in his chair or go work on something else. Yeah. But, you know, lazy in quotes. I mean, obviously everybody's driven and passionate, but like, it's, it's this concept of like somebody who's not going to just simply gets, you know. They're not willing to grind the wheelstone with no effort. You know, just repeat the same thing over and over again with no measurable increase or impact. Not willing to grow, not willing to work themselves on them the day in, day out, you know, cash the paycheck. Which again, I'm not disparaging those people at all because people have families, people have things they don't care about other than computing, job's a job. I get that. But for the kind of stuff that I do and the kind of people I want to work with, I want to be with people who want to be there, you know, as much as they can. And if, even if they don't want to be there, they just want to automate out the stuff that like ideally like drives them crazy every day. Like I can't imagine doing a job where, you know, like I'm filling out claims forms every single day, writing the same, filling in the same form. Like I would turn that into a CSV or an OCV and then, you know, go off for lunch. And then when they find out that I did it, get fired, you know, because, oh, that's not, this is just the way we do things here. I'm like, well, then we're not a good fit as a company. Um, yeah. And I, I think that that kind of don't repeat yourself, that efficiency mindset transcends just like your work stuff and it goes all the way out to your community outreach, right? Like you've learned a lot of lessons, which you even in this conversation are imparting on us, right? You're not letting those lessons and mistakes or whatever that you've learned just end on you and apply to your life. You're now paying it forward. And just by sharing a couple sentences, you're passing on the lessons that you've learned to others. Well, it doesn't translate to building my deck. I'm out there with a shovel every day still. So <laughs> I still got a lot to learn. One day at a time, right? Yeah. Um, I love that you mentioned hotkeys, though, 
and and keyboard shortcuts because for me in my career that was a big jump up once i discovered like wait i don't need to like take forever to do everything i can just kind of stay looking with my hands right here and just move the cursor like with the home key and shift and all that kind of stuff um, yeah that was a big big improvement well, and so having, you know, go ahead i was gonna say but also here's where i'm sort of a hypocrite too in that like um, I've been playing with like JetBrains Writer because I get it as part of an MVP. And if you don't know what that is, it's basically like it's sort of like a, a competitor Visual Studio. So it's a really nice IDE for C Sharp. And it's great. And there's all kinds of nice things. But the interface is different. And this stuff's over here and that stuff's over there. So I keep doing my C Sharp and VS Code. Why? Well, it's because of what I've always done. you know. So like I'm a hypocrite in that way, those things. But again, the other aspect of that being is that I have this tool that's good enough and I've already learned it. I, I can be more productive here. So for the, you know, if I were doing C sharp like every day, like I became a full blown C sharp developer, I would absolutely take the time to learn Writer because the productivity benefits I would gain from it in the long run are going to be worth it. But for the little bit that I play around with it, and for the little things I write in VS stuff, like VS Code's good enough, and I'm much more productive today. I don't need to make that stepwise investment. Right, you're empowered to kind of choose a tool that fits for you without having to invest a ton of time just to solve a small problem or whatever. Correct. Well, I am happy to report that uh, you showing me VS Code Pets has decreased productivity in our office by at least 30% across the As board. As was intended. Everyone loves it. Everyone always loves to do, you know, it's, it's it's become almost a trope these days of the old Steve Jobs one more thing in presentations. So yeah, that was my one more thing for that presentation. But yeah, it's, it's a great, it's a great little levity thing. I remember when I first saw it a couple of years ago and just like, like I told, I told him like you got to do Zappy, which is the Azure Functions mascot. This yeah. little lightning bolt with the brackets on it, and yeah, and and Mark was kind enough to make that, and he did a great job. And I was very happy. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Zappy runs faster than the other ones. Like that thing goes. So were we talking about a plugin? We were talking VS Code plugins. What is this thing we're talking about? Uh, uh, VS Code Pets. It just puts a little. It starts off. I think the default is a cat, so, and it runs around and plays in your window. In VS you Code, seen it, you got to check it out. Yeah, just just yeah. Go right now. You got your VS Code window open right now. Go to your extensions button. Hit those little three squares with the one removed, and type type pets. And I think it's probably the first result. I don't want to get too behind the scenes. I've seen this before. I'm just asking for the viewers. Oh, I, I, right I, I see how it is feigning. <laughs> I uh, I love what's with this fourth wall it? stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun though. Honestly, it's a great plugin because you want to make it a fun thing that you use. You know, you want to make VS Code. Yeah, you're not going to use it every day, but like little things like that. If it gets someone interested and curious and thinking like, oh, wow, this VS Code thing is kind of cool. You can extend it. And, um, we should also shout out. I know we shouted out on the podcast before, but that uh, Justin shared a plugin for VS Code that was for Excel, I believe. Uh, there's an Excel preview viewer. Is that the one you're thinking of? I or? believe so. Yeah, you shared it on um, Twitter, if I recall correctly. I mean, maybe I'm just lying here, but if I recall correctly, you shared that, and I, I shared that with a few people, and we shared it on the podcast, and people were quite excited. Yeah, it's it's one. I, I think it's the one I'm th you're thinking of. It's the one where you can just click any Excel file, and it'll open it in a VS Code editor pane, and so you can look at it. And they very recently added editing to it, which sometimes screws up, but for the most part, like so, it's really handy. Like you again, you don't have to change context. You have to open a whole separate Excel. You don't even have to have Excel installed. And I think it even works in VS Code Dev now. So, like, if you have an Excel in somewhere, you can just open it in GitHub in the web browser and view that table there. And yeah, the whole reason I love that extension was I had I have this huge project that like basically generates eight thousand distribution lists dynamically using all kinds of special custom parameters for this company. And they decided that for their input, like the way they want to define their groups, they didn't want a website. They didn't want. They wanted a giant Excel table. 
that on one side is like the titles of the people and on the other side is like the names of the groups and so these pe- these people go into these groups they just want this big matrix and i'm like okay so i use the import excel thing to bring that in and just turn it into a powershell object and treat it like an interface and just go from there but you know being able to just bring that thing up in a tab was really nice so again i found that thing just because i had a problem i wanted to solve and i just googled excel vs code or something like that or I just went into the extensions tab there and just typed excel and just started to try to go past the top results and start going to the low hit results because one thing i found is that there's some really quality extensions that don't have a lot of people using them. And like, you know, my extension pack is sort of tries to help highlight some of those. Um, cause like, you know, cause they, cause the, the newest ones, you know, all the really popular ones are like the old ones, all the like new ones that are really innovative. Don't have that many hits unless they have like the backing of GitHub to promote them and that kind of thing. So yeah, there's all kinds of fun stuff like that in there. I mean, I would say like, if I had to pick one extension other than the power Excel extension, that is the most useful to me. Um, it's probably Git Graph. Git Graph is awesome. I mean, yeah, there's other tools that can do it. You have Git Crack and you have GitHub Desktop. But again, you have to leave VS Code to look at those. And Git Graph, being able to visually see Git, because um, you know, I do some crazy stuff with Git sometimes. And like, you know, just learning Git again, talking this thing like, does Git intimidate you? Awesome. It intimidated the heck out of me. I remember the first time I changed branches and I had my explorer portal open. I changed branches and all the files went away because the branch was behind the other one. And I'm like, where, where, where'd my files go? Where, where'd everything go? Oh God, I freaked out. And I was like, oh, okay, okay. This thing actually keeps it. Okay. So, and like, I just had to build confidence that they're not actually gone. They're in this whole revision control system. There's a way to see them, you know? And now I'm at the point where like, I, you know, I, I don't, I'm not scared of anything in, in Git. I know that no matter what I do, I can fix it. Aside so from like two or three commands. When you say Git, you mean G-I-T? Yes. The, uh, the, the revision control, control system. Right, yeah. yeah. yeah I think after your talk, I started messing with that graph. It's interesting how you can see where you're branching out in there. So I, have, I don't know, we, we talk about how it's nice to have, we do a lot of things with uh, command line now, but sometimes you just need a visual representation still, just to assure. It can be helpful for visualizing things for yeah. sure. No, I mean, anytime I'm solving a problem or anything, like I'm visualizing it in my head. Like whenever it comes to like a network, like I'm visualizing like, you know, like letter, you know, letters traveling through a post office system like that. And that's the thing, like part of the reason I think I'm so successful and have such a broad level of knowledge is just as I mentioned with like languages, like once you learn the core of networking, you know, once you learn TCP IP and all that kind of stuff, when you go to storage networking, like fiber channel and stuff, like it's pretty much the same concepts, just a different protocol, like fiber channels, very similar, you know, the WWIDs are basically Mac addresses. And you know, this is basically that. And when you learn one language, you know, you learn method, you know, you learn PowerShell, you're like, okay, a method is basically a function, and a class is basically an object, you know, like, you know, all the concepts kind of translate back and forth. So, you know, there's nothing new under the sun a lot of the time. And so when you go into a new industry or a new field, or a new area of technology, you tend to come to find that like, you know, it's all just ends up being the same stuff, you know, it's all ones and zeros in the end, as I was as I always like to say, like, all just ends up as ones and zeros. So, and the, the, everything else is just concepts and abstractions that people have built on top. And some abstractions just work as concepts for things. And so they tend to be repeated. And so you see, you see that a lot. And so it's really easy for me to pick things up where you like you, I do Terraform. And it's like, okay, yeah, you have like a HCL. This is kind of like Pester, you know, okay, I get that. And then once I get that, then I move on to like bicep and it's like, okay, I see how this is like Terraform in terms of the concepts that they're borrowing and that kind of thing. And, you know, you can just take these things and you don't have to learn the whole thing all over again, even though it is something quote unquote new. Um, yeah. A lot of know. the principles are shared. 
Um, it's funny you mentioned that because that's what I observed with you. Like, at least I mentioned this to Jordan, where it's like, yeah, you, you seem to know a lot about things, but it's in my opinion because you've seen concepts presented in different forms so you can see what's common and having that perspective like you mentioned earlier the context of why we're doing things well the context of why did this language choose to do this this way well it's similar to this thing that i saw in this other language and okay there's something there and you know you don't have to repeat yourself with the whole learning process you can build on the previous knowledge of similar things and i try to pick skills that aren't niche skills like i try to look where the industry's going like i remember you know like when i first saw vmware and i'm like that's what i want to do that's going to be the future and, you know, and that's what I, you know, a good, huge, I was a VCP. I did VMware installs all the time and I was racking, stacking servers. I was, you know, going to these huge Vegas data centers, installing things, having a, having a blast. And then it got to the point Then I started, you know, I remember, you know, I remember that there was a time like when Microsoft announced BPAS, Business Process Optimization Services, which was basically the precursor to Office 365. I took one look at that thing. I'm like, that's never going to fly. Like, that's never going to work. Are you kidding me? Like with the way that the internet is and these things and companies aren't going to want their data not on their premise. Like you guys are crazy. There's no way anybody's going to buy this. And then that became Office 365. So I don't get everything right. My former boss did. He went all in on that. I'm like, good luck. I mean, like I I look forward to seeing you on the on the uh, unemployment line. You know, I was wrong and he was right. But, you know, the other one of those things is like when I started seeing AWS and Azure, I'm just like this, you know, five, six years ago, more than that. I mean, six, seven years ago, you start seeing it. It's like, okay, it's kind of, why would anybody, you know, first I'm like, why would anybody spend all this money to build what they could just build on premise? Like, it doesn't make any sense. You know, why would you go to that effort? Then once you start realizing like you can, the things that you can build out and then tear down and how you can build these huge multinational applications and have them cost almost nothing. When it would cost you millions to even try standing that up. And then if it doesn't work, just tear it down as opposed to being left with the bag with that equipment. I looked at that and I'm like, I'm out of a job rack stacking servers in 10 years. I need to stop doing this. I need to start doing this Azure stuff. You know. And so then I just started moving into that. And so I haven't physically touched a server in probably four or five years now. Um, just, you know, and I that used to be what I did all the time. So I I just, you know, for, for the nature of what my work, I, I'm lucky again, I'm lucky to be in a position to do that kind of thing. I mean. I'm generally working with consulting companies and I have uh, a wonderful manager and a wonderful company that empowers me to do basically whatever I want to do, shift my interests as long as we're making money, you know, that's all that matters, right? So, um, you know, not everybody's in that position, you know, they have the company that they're in, they have dictated what they got to work on and they don't really have, you know, that level of choice for growth. But I've been lucky enough to be in a position and also choose to be in a position where, you know, there's more uncertainty, but I'm I'm giving a lot more flexibility. I can choose what direction I want to go with my career. And that's that's kind of just how I've come across so many things. Cause I get bored so fast. The second I become an expert in something, I'm done. I don't want to do it anymore. And then I move on to the next thing. So Yeah, I can definitely relate to that. For my hobbies to other things, it's like once you kind of figure it out, the excitement of the situation is kind of it, it leaves quickly. Yeah. Hence, hence my graveyard of GitHub projects that haven't seen a commit in two, three years. But yeah, <laughs> I can relate to that. Uh, earlier, just to circle for our viewers who haven't heard of it yet, you mentioned a PowerShell extension pack that you put together, and that um, is an awesome collection of VS Code extensions that you've kind of put together that are specific to PowerShell. Yeah. So what I did was basically there's an article. And again, I just found out about this. I was like, one day I was like, you know, it'd be really nice. I got this is before like a lot of setting sync stuff happened, but I made the same. Man, it would be really nice if I, I have all these extensions that I like, but I'm sick of like going to install them whenever I got to reinstall. What if I had them all together? 
And I just, there was just an article on the VS Code site that said, hey, you can make a thing called an extension pack. It turns out it's actually the easiest extension you can make because it's literally one JSON file. It's the same core JSON file. If you go look at my extension, if you go to the repository, so to find it, you just go into the VS Code extension. If you type PowerShell, it's like the fifth one down, otherwise type PowerShell extension pack. And if you click that, you can see that as well as like 32 different extensions that you can install them piecemeal. You can look and see, oh, that looks interesting. Or you can just click install and get the whole shebang. Um, that's literally just a JSON file. That is the, the base skeleton for any other VS Code extension and one section called extensions. And in there, you put the names of the extensions that you want to be in there. And bada bing, bada bang, bada boom, you take that, you publish it to VS Code Marketplace. Congratulations, you now have your own extension pack published to the marketplace. Like, you know, it's, it's not a complicated thing. I, I love your extension pack. For me, um, the amount of plugins that you have in there, it's a super amazing launching off point. Um, I would not have discovered a lot of the plugins in there. And for me to just be able to maybe not be spending a ton of time figuring out VS Code all the way, but to be able to like have a jumping off point of like, oh, here's a great way to interact with APIs. And here's a way to uh, have some better markdown stuff and blah, blah, so on and so forth, which leads to a much better experience in VS Code without me having to like learn the hard way that maybe certain yeah. things aren't there. No, I, I think my favorite thing is like, like there's not, the great thing about VS Code is there's a lot of frustrated ty TypeScript developers out there. Because <laughs> everything in type, VS Code is written in TypeScript. There's all kinds of TypeScript developers who use it where there's something about VS Code that annoys them. And thankfully, again, because it's open source, they either contribute directly or they make an extension. And the most popular extensions, like Bracket Pair Colorizer was one of the most popular extensions, great extension, loved it. So popular that VS Code looked and they said, hey, this thing's super popular. Why don't we make this part of VS Code itself? If you used a VS Code recently, if you didn't have it enabled before, you probably noticed that all your brackets have different colors now. Um, definitely something to check out. There's great articles on that. But what, again, what Microsoft did great. They didn't poach it. They didn't try to do their own sub version of it. They got the guy who wrote that extension and had him write the code for VS Code. The guy who wrote the original test adapter, they had him, they worked with him, and said, hey, these are great concepts. We want to kind of do this. What do you think? They worked with him, and now VS Code has a native test API, which is how the Pester test extension works, is it works against a native API that's in VS Code that didn't used to exist. You know, it's, just, it's just a great, again, it's, it's another great example of community. Is just a lot of the things that you see in the PowerShell community, you see in Visual Studio Code. Just a lot of people just trying to get stuff done, and the ones who have the skill are more than happy to contribute. It's like, hey, I fixed this thing because it annoyed me. I'm going to put it out there as an extension, see if this helps anybody else. This is, it's just great. I love seeing it. My, my first thought in yours was uh, 28 extensions, like that's too many extensions. And then you pointed out to me that it doesn't load them all until you use them. So even though you have them there, it's not taking resources until you use them, which makes it so it's not so so bad. Or at first thought 28, I was a bit skeptical. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that's what I need. If you go under, if you go to any extension and you go to its list in the extension list, like go to its picture and it's got all the details. There's a tab there for feature contributions. If you scroll all the way to the bottom, there's a section for activation events, and what that says is that will tell you when this extension is going to load. R really clever. I mean, it's, they're not the first ones to do this, but it's, it's a clever feature to have, which is basically like, hey, you know, especially if you have an environment like VS Code where your goal is to be able to support all this different stuff. You don't want to have it so people install all the different stuff and now it takes, you know, 10 seconds, 15 seconds just to start the thing. We've seen that before. We know what that looks like with Visual Studio and such. Um, Visual Studio has gotten better since then. But, um, you know, we don't want to go down that road. So what they did was they made it so, hey, for your extension, you can have a context in which it's activated. So for instance, my Pester test extension, it doesn't activate unless your workspace 
has a some file in there somewhere that's file.tests.ps1. If that if a, at least one file like that doesn't exist, my extension never loads. And same thing with the PowerShell extension. It doesn't load until it sees a .ps1 file in your environment. So if you're working on a Go thing, you can leave the extension loaded. Now, some extensions don't behave themselves. Some extensions just, because you can set an activation event of star where your extension loads no matter what, and there's good reasons to do that. But you can also selectively disable extensions. And not only can you do that on a, on a, on a full environment basis, you can do it on a per workspace basis. So for instance, I have folders where I'm doing stuff in Go where I disable like all these other extensions because I know I'm never going to use them. That sometimes they activate regardless, and that still helps keep the startup time down. So even if you have, like my VS Code has 102 extensions installed, and I'm looking at it right now. And so, but, you know, there's times that I'll open a certain extension folder, but that one may only have like 32 of them enabled just to help, again, to help keep things fast. So yeah, all that kind of stuff has been thought about where like, you know, performance is key. It's the most important thing. And so that most of the time when you install extensions, they behave themselves. And for the ones that don't, you can selectively disable and enable them as you need to. You just right-click them and you can choose either disable or disable for this workspace. And what's really fun too, is you can even right-click them and say, uh, recommend for this workspace. If you right-click when you say recommend, now your project, it'll put a little thing in your VS Code where now whenever somebody opens your project from GitHub, this little thing will pop up saying, hey, the author of this, uh, this, author of this project recommends you install these extensions. And you could put the PowerShell pack as one of them. Fun little tip, there's part of one of my presentations for free for you. Now I can't use it for PSConf for you. So. It's, it's been used, it can't ever be used again. That's right, it's been burned. It's been burned, <laughs> just like a joke. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us. This has been awesome. We always uh, we always said that you you dive into the why and you did not disappoint. We learned a lot of things we wouldn't I didn't expect to, and I think that's pretty cool. We mentioned a lot of really complex stuff that might be intimidating depending on where you are in your PowerShell journey. But reminder, you don't have to start there. You don't have to start like Justin did with an extension, right? He started, I think, with filing, updating a README or whatever. You know, you start small. You start with whatever is the next step for you. And eventually you can build up and a lot of the stuff that maybe Justin has mentioned today will be a lot more approachable. But if you're not there right now, that's completely fine. You're in the right place. You're listening to the right people. Emulate people like Justin and you'll kind of get there as time goes on. And one thing I really want to is engage with the community. Join the PowerShell Discord. Join Twitter. The only reason I joined Twitter was I realized I could message people who are on the PowerShell team directly and they would respond to me. And I was like, well, I need a Twitter account. And like that's that's the whole reason I have a Twitter account. And, you know, the PowerShell Discord, like there's great channels. The PowerShell help channel is amazing. Like guys who know more than me, you know, are going to be in there answering your questions. Everybody's super nice, super helpful. Uh, there's a whole tab there about getting started. If you have different ways you learn, like if you like watching videos, then John Savile's great. If you like doing, there's PS Cones. That's all there. And if you have a question, just ask it. You know, there's some great stuff there about how, there's even stuff in there about how to ask a good question. And if you ask a question in the PowerShell Discord, there's a good chance I'm going to be one of the guys answering it because I'm in there all the time trying to answer questions because I learn stuff all the time. <laughs> Another one of my favorite axioms is the best way to get the right answer is to answer a question incorrectly. And so that's <laughs> usually how it works for me is I'll go on the PowerShell Discord, I'll answer something completely confidently, and then Patrick or somebody will come along and be like, well, actually, it's like this. I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. And today I learned. Great. Now, that happens to be, that happens to be you know, twice a week, twice a day, you know? All the time, as long as I've been doing PowerShell, what, 13 years? Learned stuff all the time that I had no idea. 
learn by open, learn in the open, learn by doing. Uh, we'll have to have you on later to have some more axioms. I, I got to learn some more of these. I'm, I'm a machine for them. <laughs> Good. I, I, they're truthful. I, I love them. I haven't really heard the term axiom too much. I had to Google it and I was like, oh, wow, yeah. that sounds quite accurate. Yeah. There's, they're just, there's just succinct terms that convey a larger concept. So like, you know, you want to convey something that would normally take an hour to explain, but you just do it in a few words. Audience. Beloved listeners, if you've enjoyed this episode or any other episodes, we would greatly appreciate it if you please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice, Cinco. That's five stars. Thank you very much. Um, and if you have any questions, feedback, anything really, uh, you can email us at PowerShell at PDQ.com and we appreciate any and all feedback and community engagement. Am I supposed to say anything else there? No, we don't end on that, do we? <laughs> You know, that's, that's the end. Okay. Well, thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening to the PowerShell Podcast with your hosts, Jordan Hammond and Andrew Plaw. You guys rock! We do it because we love you. The PowerShell Podcast is a production of PDQ.com.